All right, Dennis, you made an important point when you when when you were talking about love and permanency. That um, there is a lot of stuff that's built into our culture that comes out of Christianity. That even though that people may not be Christian because they were raised in the culture of Christianity, uh, they pick up bits and pieces of it as part of our uh, learning experience. All right. And one of them has to do with the constant impression of God being permanent. Unconditioned or something. Unconditionally permanent. He was there before the creation, and when the creation is gone, there'll still be heaven, and he'll still be there, okay? This this also has a quality in the in the uh, ancient religions in general that people did not like the fact that things broke, things are temporary, people die, and that we don't like to die, that we want to live on and on. And so we bring up these concepts of permanency that wind up, there's, there's some actual philosophical terms that are used. One of them is eternalism. Eternal means that things are going to continue to last on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Then there is another term that's similar to that that they call semi-eternalism, which means things are going to go on and on and on and on and on for a very, very long time, and then a whole lot more time after that, but eventually it will come to an end. Yeah. But that's so far into the future that it's almost exactly the same thing as eternalism, is the semi-eternalism. Um, an example of that would be after many, many lives of samsara. Yeah, you'll be free. <laughs> begin to complete yourself so that eventually you will become a Buddha. But that's many, many eons and thousands of lifetimes away. Okay, that's what we mean by semi-eternalism, which has all the flavor, all of the flavor of being completely eternalism. Then the next one would be annihilationism in the sense that something exists and then it gets destroyed. It exists for a long time and then it gets destroyed. It's annihilated. This is actually the mentality uh, that gives rise to this following expression, and that is, is that upon the breakup of the body, upon the dissolution of the body, the existing being is annihilated. Yeah, the bhava. Basically, what we have would be the atheist point of view. Yeah. That I exist until I die, and then I don't exist anymore. But Buddhism says, if I'm not mistaken, like um, the being is made up by clinging, right? It's actually exactly. created by clinging. Okay, yeah. The being is actually uh, the relationship between the clinging and the clingor. Yeah. yeah. Got to be a Star Trek joke in there someplace about a Klingon. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... But basically, yes. The, the self is created as the clinger. The clinging happens with the illusion that there is a clingor going on with that. But now let's go back and make that uh, point about love. That generally, love has been religiousized. Yeah. And that uh, in, in the Greek, there is a word called agape. And that uh, Paul was trying to make the point that there is a different kind of love. Now, basically, what we have in, in uh, the Pali and within Buddhism is the concept of metta, which we have is, is friendliness, being friends, or uh, kindness, being kind. But even the Christians, when they grab metta, they put the word loving kindness in it yeah yeah there's a different always, quality always the word love has a particular quality to it and the quality is that what the object of love is desirable 
and worthy of being loved. Yeah, it has meaning. It's got meaning to it, okay? And this, this quality of meaning or importance is something then that's strongly built into our society coming out of the roots of Christianity in the Dark Ages that give us the idea of, of importance. And in fact, even in the Age of Enlightenment, with the French Revolution and the uh, bringing on of science, was not much more than just merely changing the focus onto what was important. Okay, that that um, that this was no longer important. This is important. Yeah. This is no longer worthy of our love and affection and attention. This is worthy of our love, our affection and attention. That's right. like the monkey, the monkey mind. Exactly. But what they fail to understand through the teachings of the Buddha is no, if this one was and no longer is important, and this one was and uh, not important and now is, that means it can can go back to it's no longer important when this over thing over here becomes important, right? Yeah, yeah. And so importantness is not intrinsic to any individual item that we have. The importantness is manufactured within the one's own mind. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then it's translated down through um, the generations, that one generation will teach their children what's important. The children will rebel against that and say, no, that's not important. This is important. And then they'll teach that importance to their children, and their children will reject that and say, no, that's not important. This over here is important. And none of them make the connection that, wait a minute, this importantness that's been changing all this time means that none of those things or anything new is going to actually be important as an intrinsic value. That that importantness was added to it later. An example of that is gold. Yeah. Think about gold bullion and how important it is. The entire world's economy, they think, you know, at least at one time it did. And there are still people who hold tons and tons of gold. They hoard it up. Why? Because they think it's intrinsically important. Intrinsically important. Not eventually important, but yeah. it's got a value that's intrinsic to it, to where if you look at gold, it's got some properties. It's got heaviness. It's really heavy. It's bright and shiny. It doesn't deteriorate. But we've got a lot of stuff that fills some of those roles. Lead is also heavy. Lead is also shiny. If you have just lead, lead oxide, not so much. But lead itself is shiny. The same thing with aluminum. Okay, so why is gold so much more valuable than lead? In fact, you can't make a gold acid battery, but you can make a lead acid battery. Yeah. And so at least you've got some function. And we do have some function. Gold can be, for instance, is malleable. It also is a good conductor of electricity. So it does have those kinds of uses, but it doesn't have any intrinsic value. Another example of one who many people thought that it had intrinsic value. In fact, now we can all see it doesn't have any intrinsic value at all, or, or few people will hold that, and that would be Thor. What was it? Thor. Thor? This. Thor. Thor? I know Marvel. Yeah, right. The, 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 the guy who gives us the name for Thursday. Thor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the hero. So at one time, Thor was really important, and now you don't even know who he was. That's how important he is. Yeah. Well, he's turned into a hero. Pardon? He's turned into a hero. Uh, right, with a big heavy hammer on uh, Marvel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so another one would be um, Zeus 
Zeus at one time had um, great value, great importance. Now, intrinsically, we recognize, no, Thor doesn't have any value at all. Yeah, yeah. Many, many people say that same thing of Allah. 1.7 billion people are Muslims, and at least they keep jacking the number up. It's got to be at least 1 billion. And yet all of the other people don't think that Thor, or, or excuse me, uh, Allah has any intrinsic value at all. Yeah, 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 it's relative, yeah. No, it's not relative. It's delusional. Yeah, which relative, yeah, to a sum that doesn't it's exist. relatively <laughs> delusional then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, 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 uh, I was just going to ask real quick. <laughs> Why, why is it that, that um, the United States, like, because ordinary right view, ordinary right view is to be like, like, you know, mostly when you think of ordinary right view, it's like a religious person, like a, a great religious person or, or a great person in general. Um, and, and, and these, in these cultures, they kind of like idolized ordinary right view, like to the highest degree. And in in the in United it is. States, it has yeah. to be in the because United States. No, it's it's not. There's like nothing in the United States. It's like there's not that. There's absolutely nothing. There's no there's no like view anymore. That I mean, there's science, but a lot of people in general, if you live here, you know for a fact that everybody doesn't is confused. It is very confused. Like you know, very. <laughs> Okay, let us put it this way then, if we're going to take a left turn off into uh, views like that. Because Generally, we can, we can really think of wrong view as the view, I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. that little phrase, I can get away with it, because it's really, really packed with a lot of stuff in there. In other words, I can do bad. And I know that it's bad because I call it bad, and I can do that and still get away with it. In other words, I know that I should not get away with it because an awful lot of people are going to not like it. Except that we can say, oh, if I lie to them and get enough people to believe me, then I can get away with it. Yeah. Ordinary right view is telling the people of wrong view, no, you can't get away with it. Yeah, yeah. Our God will get you if we don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is where I circle back to the love and hate, which is those two. Exactly. And the confusion comes in when people will lie to themselves thinking, I can get away with it, where deep inside they know they can't. That yeah. they can't get away with it, or that they may not be able to get away with it. And so that's where the confusion comes in. But in that regard, the love and the hate that you're talking about then, or the I like it and I don't like it, tend to get into this in, in a situation with eternalism. That my love is so big that it will last forever. They have marriage ceremonies and death until they part, you know? Yeah. But that has to do more with ownership and control of material possessions than it does. For instance, we've got antiques. They're digging stuff up out of the funerals of the, uh, of the ancients. Okay, we have Tuknat Amun on full display in all of his um, uh, funeral attire. So some physical objects do last a long time. Yeah. That gives us the impression that they are permanent, where in fact they are not. An example of that would, was at the time of Jesus, they thought that, that they had a good temple and it was going to be a good temple. And Jesus told them, no, there's going to come a time when there's not one stone left on the other, that heaven and earth will pass away. Everything changes. This is the right way of looking at it, that this is in fact a noble view that um, the right ordinary view and the wrong view are just kind of in a, in a fight with each other, a war with each other, 
to where the wrong view, I can get away with it. The right ordinary view is no, you can't get away with it. If I can't uh, uh, get my revenge for you, someone else or something else will take revenge upon you in my behalf. Yeah. So that you can't get away with it. Guess what? Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Yeah. But in fact, uh, some thieves are so stupid that they don't get away with anything. They get caught immediately. Other uh, thieves are, are very smart and wily, and they get away with it for a long time. Some of them get away with it long enough to die. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like skilled and unskillful. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, <laughs> skillful, wrong behavior. Yeah, yeah. But they die. And so then the guys with wrong or with ordinary right view or are, are left with, oh yeah, well we're still going to get you. Yeah, yeah. It's you really will weird. not. Be, you yeah. you can't die on us just to get away with it. <laughs> yeah. And so that's also part of the eternalism that you were ma- mentioning, and that's the hate. We want the hate. We want someone to um, to be punished, or we want our revenge. And so that revenge, because we want it, not recognized it at all. If I forget about the guy, I won't want revenge in that moment. I'm only wanting revenge when I think about him. Yeah, like there is no, people think they can't care. Like, for example, like sometimes like, yeah, a lot of young people like me, like we kind of say, oh, you know, F society, like in a way it's showing that, oh, we're not attached to society. But by doing that, by getting angry with it, I mean, I've learned this through practice, but like by, by getting angry at the society, that just shows that you're, you're literally getting, you're suffering because of, of society. Like you, you're choosing to suffer because you hate it so much or, or you love it. You can pretend to love it so much. Ah, either one of these two, both love and hate, then you can see is fraught with suffering. Yeah. Especially if there's ignorance mixed in there. And that you're also bringing out an important quality of that it's not just love and hate that's in my mind right now, but that it has intrinsic qualities to it, intrinsic value. My love is important. And you can see how the society in general um, manipulates this because they know that each person has it. So, excuse me, cold breaking up here. Um, the, I, I have um, a little phrase that is broken down into a word. The word is greb. G-R-E-B. Greb. G-R-E-B means government, religion, education, and business. Okay. If you think about it, our Western society is dominated by these four. Mm-hmm. It's dominated by the government, dominated by business, dominated by education, and dominated by uh, religion. Yeah. And what do they do? How do they dominate? Is because of the the ways of manipulating this love and this hate that each one of us carries that they think is permanent. Not only does the grab think that it's permanent, but that the individual thinks so too. Yeah. And so the Democrats want you to love them and hate the Republicans. And the Republicans want you to love them and hate the Democrats. And they're not too satisfied when people say, well, I don't think much of either one of them. <laughs> I don't love them. And I don't like them. You don't think much of them. Yeah. And this is the basic way that we could look at it, because big business really is involved with they want you to love their product. Yeah. 
and hate doing without it or hate having to have someone else's product. They want you to, this is called brand loyalty. Yeah. Well, guess what? Brand loyalty, ever how long it lasts, is always temporary. There was a lot of brand loyalty to the Model T Ford. But I'm not a car guy. (laughs) Huh? I'm not a car guy. This is the first one. The Model T and the Model A, 1910, 1914, when they first started putting automobiles uh, into production, and that Henry Ford, actually he used the, uh, the model of boat building uh, to run his automobile assembly line. He went to a factory where they were making boats one after another after another, and he saw that they were, they were actually uh, starting up in the hill, and the boat would come down the hill, and when he would get there uh, to this station, they would do this with it. And by the time it got down all the way to the hill, down to the ocean, the boat was ready to sail. And so they had five or six or eight boats all in, in part production, and one group would do just one thing. They only laid keels. But they stayed there laying keels, and then the boat was moved down for the uh, guys who were doing the fitting, et cetera, like that. Okay, so... Um, Henry Ford then did that with the automobile and started making them in very cheap. And so it became uh, what they would call it then is the cat's pajamas or the it's cadets. And these are the kind of words that they had. But there was huge brand loyalty. Yeah. But yeah. now nobody is loyal to the Model T or the Model A. There's very yeah. few of them left. Uh, they weren't preserved. They were junked because nobody really had any loyalty to them anymore. The same thing is with people. Then, in fact, the Buddha wants to make sure that the young man knows what he's getting into. So the example that they have here in Thailand is, is that if you want to see what you're getting, look at the girl's mother. If you want to see what you're going to wind up with, look at her grandmother, (laughs) because that's what you're going to wind up with. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that's so true. That's rude, though, if you say that here. That's very rude. Well, that's because they worship youth. They worship the desire. Or unique. You're unique. Like you're unique. You're you're different than your mother. You're you're, you're promised. You're not like your mom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, so, oh, watch out. Here we go. I'm trying to get my screen back. Um, if we look at the girl, then we want what we see right now. And we have this illusion of permanence. Yeah, it's uh, well, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's funny because fact, love is like, yeah, things are not going to stay that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so this is an an important point of the distinction then between the Western culture, or ordinary view, and the Buddha's view is to keep track of the fact that everything is temporary. Everything changes, including what we hold important. And that along with the importance comes the idea of um, events. That events become important. They're the milestones or the hallmarks. An example of an important event is graduation from high school. Okay. Um, Graduating from the ninth grade is not much. Yeah, no. Many schools have nothing. You know, it's just okay. It's uh, ninth grade is over. We'll see you in the fall, and you can have tenth grade. Okay. Even my graduation, like I didn't care. I I didn't care. Like in my twelfth grade graduation, I was no one cared. (laughs) No one. Nobody cared. Right. Okay. But but you can see that some people care. What does that care? That means that the ceremony is important. The graduation ceremony is important to some people. But it's not, because it's not always important to some people. It's only important to some because they choose to make it important. 
So we in our society have been taught our whole lives that we, the individual child, is important. An example of that is the phrase, no child left behind, which means that every child is important, right? Mm -hmm. And we were taught about that, that we are important. And so we grow up with a false sense of importance. Yeah. That we have some intrinsic value. To in fact, really, there is no intrinsic value. Nothing really is important. Yeah. Intrinsically, inside of that thing, the only importance is what we add to it with our own mind, our own desire, our own love, and our own hate. And so now we understand that love and hate, in fact, are very, very temporary. That when you love the girl, you only love her for a short time. Yeah, it really is. That's true. <laughs> All and of us can get over it. Right. <laughs> that nothing, and yet. Uh, all of the idealization of uh, romance and marriage and relationships, um, they've, they've got a point to it, and the point is children. That when a child is born, it's going to need a certain number of years of care before it's ready to take care of itself. And as our society gets more sophisticated, the time that it takes to get a child ready for the level of sophistication of our society takes longer and longer and longer. In some societies, a child is ready to go. He's fully adult at the age of six. Yeah, yeah. Huh? No, yeah. Put him to work. Some... Time yeah. for him to wait tables. Put him yeah. in the field. It's time for him to go, you know, time to go to work. Uh, but as the societies become more sophisticated, that means that the child is not ready. Well, that, that makes then that this time period becomes now important for the child, that he does not get a good education, or if he's not well prepared for the society that he's going to have to live in, then his life is going to be miserable. And so we talk about that as being important. Therefore, the mom and dad should stay together so that the child is taken care of long enough so we can become ready for society. That's the underlying point. And you can see then that, wait a minute, that's not enough to keep a husband and a wife together. Yeah, no. No way. <laughs> no. Uh, Not just pleasure, pain. That's because when the wife came into the relationship, she came not just 100% desirable. Mm-hmm. She brought along her own loves and hates yeah. that don't match with the husband's loves and hates. And pretty soon, um, the division begins to happen. That in, that in fact, to hold and to keep a relationship does, in fact, they say requires work. What it does is it requires care. And sometimes caring for someone is a lot of work. And so they think of it like that. But the whole point is, is that in the original societies, in more primitive societies, the societies that we grew up and built our DNA upon that lasted literally hundreds of thousands of years is the child was old enough to take care of itself by the age of six. Therefore, there's no reason for a relationship to last longer than six or seven years. And so that's the natural time for a relationship to, to last. And then you look and start looking at divorce rates and you say, bingo, <laughs> that's about how long they last. You get the kids into, into primary school and after that, time for um, scouting around and looking for something new. And so in our nature, our nature is just to not have long-term lasting sexual relationships of marriage. But there's another feature that comes into that. And that is ownership of property. That 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 girl was 
beautiful. She was not dead gorgeous, and I wanted her really badly, and her dad knew that. And so her dad wants to make a business relationship. So after I buy him uh, some gold and a motorbike and a television, he'll let me have the girl. But he's got the motorbike and he's got the TV. I want the girl. She's mine. She's permanent. This yeah. is what marriage has been about historically is it's a business deal to yeah. prove ownership, which goes against human nature. Therefore, marriages don't last unless you force them to. Yeah, I know. I know. Most people don't like to hear that. That's a real big, like, don't, what'd you say? What'd you say to me? It's offensive. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. All right. So if one is a Dhamma dude and knows about this stuff, he can, in fact, maintain relations because he is got the wisdom and the uh, knowledge of the effort that it takes to keep a relationship going. Yeah. And part of that has to do that he can also manage his own desire because he recognized that the relationship that he's got now is actually better than the relationship that he doesn't have because he's making it better. But the normal mind will say, oh, this one is sour now. Time to throw this <laughs> one off, go get a new one. Yeah, like it's almost like a meditator with, uh, with, uh, with, with um, pleasure or something or like, trying to get something somewhere. It's always the same thing, like a metaphor for everything that we practice when it comes mm -hmm. to pleasure and pain. We think that, that uh, pleasure comes from love. Yeah, yeah, no. But it doesn't. Mm. No, in fact, the pleasure uh, of love only comes when we get the object of desire. In other words, the satisfaction of getting what we want. Yeah. And even and then, so, would, you, would you say even like, because there's just, there's just a body? Yeah. It's just the body. Hang on a second. I'm, we're, going, we're going to be finished with this call soon, so I'll just stop that one and talk to him later. All right. So... <laughs> This idea, then, that we want things to last a long time because we like them. And because we like them, we give them importance. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see how this operates within the mind in the sense that if I like it, that means I want it. And if I want it, that means that it must be good. It's inherently good. Sure. And because it's inherently good, it's also inherently important. But these are only mind things that we do. The basic point was, I liked it. Yeah. And so this is why um, uh, the story about Achan Samedo and Achan Cha at the ceremony, where there was a lot of pretty girls, that's what really comes up now, is, is that yeah. we can recognize, I like it, but I don't want it. And that's okay. But loving it is, in fact, the wanting it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and uh, loving it I'm means sorry. I want it really badly. I'm sorry, I, I have a question. And this one would be like to kind of, it's funny because I guess I'm kind of going up and up and trying to correlate. So in the sense, like for, for somebody who hears a teaching like, like from the Buddha, like Nibbana in a sense, Nibbana could be like if you flip a coin like it's on the same side of the coin like it could be for a western mind right who's not enlightened who's not who has never heard of the teaching of a buddha or anything and hears about freedom and everything like this they might like feel depressed because they heard it wrongly they they and it's dukkha to them to them it's like but he's speaking about nibbana he's not speaking about dukkha right exactly and, and so um, Nibbana is like when you see the world rightly. 
when you see it correctly with wisdom, with the perception, with the right perception. Okay, let's say a little bit more is needed in the sense that the first thing that we do is that we wake up or we see. We have the first kind of uh, enlightenment, which is knowledge. This yeah. is, in fact, in the Buddhist uh, dispensation called the fetters or the um, the asava, um, um, the uh, the bondages that we have. The first three are to do with knowledge, knowledge of ourselves, knowledge of the world that we live in, and knowledge of uh, the Buddha's dispensation. So those are the first three kinds of knowledges. After that, the knowledge is turned into the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. Yes, I've, I've heard. Once the taints are in fact destroyed, the, what is left then is the smoldering ruins that cool off over time. That cooling mm. off is the nibbana, is when things are now cool. After things have, uh, after the defilements that keep us hot are eliminated and there's no more source of friction, that's when things cool down. Okay? Uh, like the brakes of an automobile. If you use those brakes, the brakes will get hot. Yeah. Yeah. The, the normal brakes, the brake shoes, and, and the pads, and the, uh, the stator, whatever it is that, that is causing resistance is intended to get hot, but when you're not using the brakes, they're cool. They're nibbana. When you're normally tooling down the road and not using the brakes at all, they're cool. Yeah. All right? So this is how we use the word nibbana. Is, is that it actually means the cooling off. Another example of that is your, the pie in the oven. When you take the pie out of the oven, it's not fit to eat right now. It's too hot to eat. Yeah. And so we put it on the windowsill to be cooled off. And then we eat the pie after it's cold. That's also the same thing about when you take, uh, when you're cooking food and you want to refrigerate it after you cook it, you let it nibbana, you let it cool before you put it into the refrigerator because if you put it into the refrigerator hot, it's going to heat up everything else in the refrigerator. Those in the refrigerator to have an awful lot of extra work to do. No, it's better to let it cool naturally down to room temperature and then put it into the refrigerator. This is all the process of nibbana. The cooling off after the fire is out. Okay, I see. Because I ask because, uh, like you say, look in every moment, and for the for the for the for the like when your mind is free from suffering, mm -hmm. and when I do that, sometimes my mind doesn't have anything, and it feels as if like this is good. This is where it's at. Like this is the place to be right here. There's no feeling. It's just like, and this doesn't happen all the time. But when it's like a really good, it does feel like a like wind is passing through me, like that. It feels like that. Like, but then you say you've talked about a little nibbana, and I, we could talk about that in the future. But I do want to hear about that little All nibbana. Right. Well, let's let's finish off with that point then. Okay. Okay. The nibbana is normally referred to as the unconditioned. Yeah. Yeah. But the people make a mistake when they hear the unconditioned and they hear it as unconditionable. Okay, yeah. No, it's not unconditionable. It's just right now not conditioned. It's not on fire. It's not hot. Therefore, it will cool. If you bring the, the pie back and put it back into the hot oven, it will heat up again. Yeah. If you put the mind back in defilements, it will heat up again. But when the mind is not in defilement, then it will begin to cool and relax on its own. And so that's when we can stay, when we can say, 
no worry, got no place to go and nothing to do. That's actually the expression of the state of Nibbana. Is there any feeling in that state? Yeah, like, a feeling of satisfaction. Now let's make sure, let's yeah. talk about that from the perspective that on this hand you have bad feelings mm -hmm. that are associated with the unwholesome, and you have good feelings that are associated with the wholesome. All right. What are the bad feelings? Fear. Someone's chasing me. Anger. I don't like what he's doing. Sadness. I have lost something. Grief. I've lost something I really love. Yeah. Grip. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And so uh, our relationship to the world will condition that. And so we are in a state of being conditioned, which means that there is a state of exaltation or excitement. Mm. That things are moving, they're excited. Um, and we uh, excite because of the importance. If things are no longer important to us, then um, the things that happen are no longer eventful. Remember, we're talking about events, okay? Yeah. Events then are related to importance because when the importance is tested, that would be an event. And the whole idea then is to get ourselves into the state to where things are not important. Nothing is really important anymore. Everything is supply. And in order for things to no longer be important, that means that things become ordinary for us. Now, this leaves us an intellectual or a linguistic catch-22. Mm -hmm. In the sense that we have been taught our whole lives to be important. To be special. Yeah. To be unique. To be uh, better than other people. Right? Causes us striving. When we recognize through wisdom and through our practice that things are really not that important, not even me. Not my death either. Important. Yeah. I have no significance. Yeah. That when yeah. I die, the world will go on. It will forget all about me. Maybe a few people will go into having a few bad feelings about it because they loved me. Yeah. But other than that, dead is dead. You can dig up the funeral attire of uh, Tuknadaman, but guess what? Tuknadaman is no more alive now than he was the minute after he died. He's dead. Okay? And so we recognize that my temporariness is only valuable while I'm still alive. Mm -hmm. And so that it's good for me to make the most of it, knowing that I am not important. Just yeah. an ordinary individual. There's actually a story about this. It's a story from Lao Tzu. Um, actually, is sorry, it's from Chang Tzu. Chang Tzu uh, was later than, than Lao Tzu, but um, the court officials wanted him to come and work in the court, and his answer was to tell them the story about the sacred white albino turtle, that the kids were in the woods, they found a white turtle. They grabbed the turtle up and took it to town. And while uh, it was in town, people found more and more and more significance and more and more importance in, in this white turtle. And so it wound up in the temple. Okay. It wound up in the temple. They made a pond for it, and, the, and everybody came to the temple and worshipped this white turtle. But the turtle, white turtle himself, he was in prison. Yeah, yeah. And so he found a way of escaping. And he escaped the, uh, the, uh, uh, the prison of the temple. And on the way out, a rabbit asked him, Why did you leave the temple? You had it fine in there. And he says, That was a prison. I would rather be a turtle dragging my tail through the mud. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's a really significant story for people who are looking for name and fame. 
Many people want to be ensconced into that temple of sacredness. Look at all the positions we have in the United States. College professor, dean, president of the university, senator, president of the United States, okay? Uh, a king, emperor. Everybody wants to be enshrined in the temple of their desire. Yeah. When every one of us would actually be better off living an ordinary life. Yeah. The ordinary is good. The special is fraught with difficulty. Why? Because the whole concept of specialness is arbitrary, capricious, and false. That everyone in their own nature is actually ordinary, but every one of us has been convinced that we're special. Yeah. And then so the main way we're living a lie. Yeah, and then the maintenance of it, the maintenance. Uh -huh. So that plays into it, for instance, when we go fishing and we get angry at dad, that's because we have the idea, wait a minute, I'm special here. You mm -hmm. better listen to me. I know what's going on. If you don't listen to me, I'm going to get just pissed off at you because I'm important. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But when we recognize we're not important and nobody really is listening because they're too busy listening to themselves instead. This is one of the reasons why the Dhamma is not proselytized. People have got to want it. It's too subtle. Yeah. Uh, the promise is too nebulous and it takes time for the students to begin to understand. Therefore, they really want it. To Christianity, they're out proselytizing because they've got a very easy um story to tell that everybody wants eternal yeah. life you yeah know? And it's easy. we've got a savior here for you he'll yeah. solve all your problems all you have to do is take our little baptism you know we're going to sprinkle you with water or we're going to drown you one or the other but after that ceremony you're good to go and a week later everybody realizes no i'm not a good to go that that uh, ceremony that event was not special yeah and that's uh, that's something I realize a lot throughout with just Buddhism in general. Uh, you start to realize that more and more, and when you practice, like, and that's and but that's good. I don't understand why sometimes I do. I get it, like, because I I understand I used to be that way. But like, why do people suffer? Why? You know, it's like you see that, and you're like, you don't have to. You don't really have to at all. You know, but, you know, oh, well. <laughs> it has to do, though, then with the delusion yeah. that we're special. Yeah, yeah. We're delusional when we say that because I have this like, because I have this love, I love something, I deserve it because I'm special. Yeah. Like I said, like I told you when that, that judging is like, it, that's what I saw in my mind, that it gives birth to the biggest aversion which creates like self like i really want like i like this better than i like this moment mm -hmm. you know that i then i like this very moment uh but yeah it, it's it's wonderful i i really that's mostly like what is it's just that like and then you you know that and it just gets it kind of you just you're flying you're flying until you reach until you reach wherever, whatever, it doesn't really matter, just fly, <laughs> just uh -huh. keep going. Well, there's an old Christian joke about that, and that is, is that you know why angels can fly? Why? Because they take themselves so lightly. Oh, wow, I love that, I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so when you start taking yourself very lightly, then you can fly, you're not important. Yeah. It's There's just like nothing the, that worthy of preservation. Yeah, and this is even, even like it's hidden. But even in those <laughs> religions, that's the point that you weren't God. If God is really love, then He made you for no reason. Why would He have? We wouldn't need one. He wouldn't, or she. You know what I mean? Like, but that's just in that mm -hmm. context. We're talking about it in that metaphorical way. 
Well, the idea then is, is that if God is love and he loves me, that means that God thinks I'm important and yeah, therefore yeah. he wants to preserve me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of letting it, because even in, in the in the highest ideals of those religions, God is formless. Mm-hmm. He cannot be seen like in, in the same in the Tao. You can't talk about it. You can't you can't talk about enlightenment. You can't talk about satisfaction. <laughs> and that way, you know, you can't give it to someone in that sense. Well, the way it's expressed is the Tao that can be said it's is not, not the Tao. Yeah. You you said something else. You can't talk about it. Yes, we can right. talk about the Tao, but we can only point to it. We cannot nab it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Here's here's um, uh, the way. In fact, this is very famous in uh, in India uh, when the guru tells the student, "I'm pointing at the moon. Look at what I'm pointing at, and stop sucking my finger." <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, so this Class. is this is what we mean in in the sense that we can speak of the Tao. But the reality is like this. I've got an experience. I'm trying to convey that experience to you, but all I have is language. Therefore, I'm going to take this experience and conceptualize it, put it into context of words. Then I'm going to say those words to you. You take those words, put them together as a concept, and now you have to take that concept and deconstruct that back into an experience. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Look how many steps. And so that means that giving someone an experience of like the Tao, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao. But we can, if with uh, skill, can give the student an experience. And the most... And and the most important experience that a, that a, a Dhamma teacher can give to the student is what we call inspiration. Yeah. Okay. okay, to inspire the student to get his own experience. Because you cannot directly convey experience one to another. But you can set the student on fire with the Dhamma by giving him uh, the inspiration that he takes. So that's basically why we tell stories. That's what storytelling is all about, is to give students inspiration, which is basically working at a level of concept so that we have this conceptualization that then is given to the student for them to make something out of for themselves. Other than that, the Tao itself cannot be spoken or cannot be said but we can experience it. Mm-hmm. And that this is basically what our uh, what our practice is, is the first thing is, is to bring us to the here now and then give us the skill to come back to the be here now over and over again and also the experience of maintaining the state of being in the here now. So those mm-hmm. are the practices. Once we're able to sustain being in the here now, that's when further investigation begins to reveal how vast things really are, how much sensory input there really is. Now, sensory input is completely different than sensual desire. Why? Because sensual desire means that I have processed that uh, sensual image or that sensual input to the point that I've got feelings about it. I like it. I want it. It's important. Yeah. yeah. But the actual input, and so this is why we mean sensual desire, and people say, oh, well, if it's sensual desire, that means the senses are bad. Oh, no. No, no. No, no. No. <laughs> Being in our sensual awareness is the only way we are able to be in the here now. But if we stay in the here now, that means that we're not doing a lot of processing into it being a sensual desire. Yeah. The, 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 in the poly, the senses, 
the Pali word is um, at, uh, the atana. The atana is the is the external senses. The external senses. Uh, the internal senses is called the salayatana. And it's the internal senses, what we've made of it, is what we like. For instance, the girl that the boy sees is just a girl. But what he sees with his mind's eye is a drop-dead gorgeous thing that is an object of desire. I want it. Yeah. Okay. But guess what? It's not the actual girl on the outside that he wants. It's what he's made up in his mind that he wants. Mm-hmm. That's when we call it sensual desires because it's actually no longer a sense. Now it's something that's been made up inside the mind. Yeah. The internal sense. Um, and so this is where we can come to the point of deconstructing that by saying, yeah, I do like it. But I really don't want it because it really is ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you could, you couldn't. I mean, I mean, even if you could touch or whatever, it's all delusion. Like you really can't own anything, really. It's, and that makes me happy, though. Like when that when I meditate and I get to that point of investigating and see, like, with those perceptions, you become free. Like you you really get happier because you like it automatically. Like it's almost automatic. Like I don't need to, I don't need to be afraid of losing my body. I don't need afraid. I don't need to be afraid of, of anyone or my well, own. You're going to die, and it doesn't matter whether yeah. you die full of fear or die full of happiness. So you've got a choice there. You're going to die one yeah. way or the other. Exactly. You know, when I was um, in, a, actually, I was a teenager. I remember it happened about the time that I was 14 because I remember the town that I was in and, and the piano teacher gave me a piece of music to learn to play. The name of that song was There's Lots of Good Fish in the Sea. And it goes like this. There's lots of good fish in the sea, the sea. There's lots of good fish in the sea. And... Um, the uh, the photos or the uh, uh, the uh, drawings or the imagery on the sheet music shows a fisherman with a net, but it's very easy for a teenage boy to hear the fish in the sea. Or actually, there's lots of good girls in the school. Yeah, that's what I thought about because that's what's usually referred to. Yeah, there's lots of good fish in the sea. I mean, there's lots of good girls out there. There's lots of women. No problem, all right? But look what we do with that. Oh, there's a soul made out there. There's someone special for you. Yeah. Okay, which means in, instead of um, limited, well, we'll eat whatever we catch tonight. Is that, oh, if we don't have a mackerel, we're going to throw out a ton of, uh, uh, of salmon because all I want is a mackerel. Yeah. This causes a great deal of suffering when guys go out looking for someone who's special because there is no one out there is special. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was the first realization I had in my youth. Yeah. <laughs> there is no specialness out there. Yeah, the specialness really is. is what we do with it in our own mind. Okay, so wanting to be special then uh, is actually is a deeply buried thing. And I say buried, basically the, the, the Pali word is mana. And the word means conceit. And the way that it's expressed is in competition. Yeah. And look at how much competition there is. Competition in politics, competition in sports, competition in warfare, competition between the states, competition for votes. Always competitive. Everything about competition has the zero-sum game mentality. In other words, if I get... He loses. If he gets, I lose. That means what? Things are special. 
I get something special, he loses something special. But if I get, doesn't necessarily mean he loses except in his own mind. So in fact, competition is um, often destructive. It's not yeah. constructive, okay? A clear example of that was how uh, they built the Twin Towers in Kuala Lumpur is that they made it competitive in the beginning. How many floors could this team get in this building versus how many floors could the other team get? And they got into a race. And before that building was anywhere near half complete, they had to stop that. They found that if they could get the two teams that were building those two buildings to cooperate with each other, they could actually get them done faster. Why? Because my bill of materials that I've got here waiting, I need next week. You can use them right now. Yeah, vice versa. Yeah. And so they were actually able to get those twin towers built faster by stopping the competition. Yeah. But generally, the mind would say, oh, if they're competing, that means they're working really hard and really fast. They can get those buildings built really quickly. <laughs> That's how, yeah. That's how it nope. always is. All right. Everything is like that. A government needs to have the various political parties work together. When they do not cooperate, you wind up with what the United States has gotten right now, which is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <coughs> because of competition. And, uh, competition and... has to do with I am me. I'm special. I'm more special than you are. I'm going to prove it. Yeah. Now, when we don't know what the problem is, we can call that anxiety. But if we can define who the problem or what the problem is, now we've got an enemy and we know how to attack it. So this is what we do often with anxiety, is, is that our anxiety, we don't know what it is. We don't know where it's come from. But if I can think of someone to blame for it, then I can feel good. Now I've got an enemy. Now I know, all right? Even though I'm telling myself a lie that it's false, that I really don't know where this anxiety is coming from by saying I know where it comes from, okay? So in the situation of getting angry at dad when he is out there uh, fishing is because we want him to listen or to hear what we have to say because what I have to say is special. Yeah, yeah, yep. Comes down Why to that. Why would he listen to me? And the answer is because what he's thinking is special to him. Yeah, and that's what I learned. That's what I learned the most hard. Again, I had to learn it with both of my parents, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah. All right, so basically what we're doing is, is that we're preparing the way or getting the way going so that we one can clean out his own mind enough so that we can deal with others in a more appropriate way than competing with them. Yeah. Over who's do, right. I, I felt that change with myself instead of when I feel like really unpleasant or any compulsive past uh habits are trying to get back in like i i i just oh well like kind of slow down i know i know you're here okay great okay welcome how you doing let's let's take this easy and that's really nice because you're like wait like because automatically i thought like i kept doing it and over time my relationship with people got better like you know like my interactions with people mm -hmm. yeah all right so this is the way that we're going to think now about when you're sitting in your practice. Okay. We begin to have good, wholesome thoughts on the inside with the intention that we're going to continue to have those good, wholesome thoughts when we're around other people, especially the ones that we're most likely to compete with. Yeah, yeah. And so this, we've pretty well done this one right now. So let's uh, work on for the rest of our talk on how to get our minds ready to deal with the world.
that we want to get away, get into seclusion, get our own mind straightened out, and then go take that straightened out, appropriately thinking mind that's full of joy back to dealing with the world in a compassionate, uh, joy-giving, easygoing way. This is what we call the uh, the Brahma Viharas, that we're going to dwell with others as if we were very high quality. That's what the word Vihara means. It's uh, actually the the word Hara in the uh, Indo-European language is the same word as we have for heart. So Vihara means in the heart or in in the place of. Uh, of dwelling or the way that we want to live. So we want to be in the dwelling the way that we would if we were very, very high class. Yeah. Okay. So we have to get our mind into that high class state and then be able to dwell there while we're living with others in the world who are not in that state. Yeah. But you're not going to let them drag you down. No. Yeah. That's where the practice I feel like you learn the most is when you're around people. Mm -hmm. How can we get that uh, mojo? How can we get our joy? How can we manage being around others when they're not there to promote your joy? They're there to promote (laughs) their importance. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, to basically destroy your sense of like conceit or whatever you think you own or something. It's like a message from the universe, like, hey man, truth. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right, well, let's leave this talk now. I've got someone that's waiting, and so we'll finish this, and and you've got something now to to work with, to, to play with, to enjoy. Uh, to understand that all of your love and all of your hate comes out of the fact that we have the delusion that we're important. And when we're not important anymore, then now we can rest. Now it's easy going. All right, Dennis. I'm glad to see you again. This has been an enjoyable talk. Yes. Sorry I didn't call. I was... I was out, you know, with the dad and everything. So never mind. Not my problem. I'm glad to see you, though, when you do call. (laughs) Don't worry about the past. Enjoy the moment. All right. Well, we'll see you. Thank you. See you soon. See you soon.